So it feels weird starting an episode like this, but I felt that it was important. Over the years, I've learned that you can't always count on people knowing your intentions and that it's important to explicitly address your thoughts so that they can't be misinterpreted. This episode you're about to hear with Eve Barlow was recorded at the end of 2020. Within it, we discuss her career in journalism and her Jewish faith, which led us to discussing Israel and Eve's beliefs towards Zionism. My stance within this episode was to be inquisitive and not to assert my own opinions and thoughts over Eve's, which is what I aim to do with all my guests. However, I do understand that people might interpret that incorrectly, so let me make this clear. I do not believe in Zionism, and I also believe that the Palestinian people deserve equal rights and land to Israeli citizens. There are Israeli people and Palestinian people that I love deeply, and as we explore near the end of this talk, this whole ordeal is messy. That said, I know some will hear this and will fall under one of two camps. Either you'll take my words at face value of context, or assume that I'm trying to play both sides. There is nothing I could say that will make the people in the latter camp think differently of me. All I could say is that I do not believe people should be physically harmed due to where they live and due to who lives next to them. All violence against humans is wrong. So the elephant in the room, why keep this talk up? Because as of now, Eve Barlow has not led me to believe she is a bad person. More than anything else, this talk is centered around the destructive nature of anti-Semitism and why Jewish people also deserve to be heard. I do not find value in only talking to people I 100% agree with, and there are no people on this planet I agree with in totality. This episode of the podcast is a civil discussion that was conducted with respect, and it has not been altered since its original posting. This is The New Exchange with Eve Barlow. Thank you for listening. So it blows me away that we get to finally have this conversation and there'll be an intro to this, but it is amazing how much your writing has meant to me over the years. So thanks for being willing to talk to me finally. Thank you so much, Ken. And, you know, thank you for all of your support over the years and yeah, and all of the engagement and conversation around music, you know? Yeah, music. That's a lovely thing that we love. You initially come from writing about music and you've always been open about how important musicians were to your youth. So talk to me about the acts that got you through school. I'm curious to hear about like what it was that kind of sparked your interest in writing at a young age. Wow. Um, Okay. Well, I think that I, for some reason I was drawn to music magazines when I was a, when I was an early teen. And I don't think it was necessarily because of specific acts, but because I considered myself as something of um, like a tastemaker or someone who had a, a better taste in music than most of my peers or my friends. I just really prided myself on knowing about a lot of music and a lot of different genres and being kind of the first person who had <laughs> the Lauren Hill CD or whatever it was, you know? Um, so I got into music magazines because I thought that that was sort of a match to my self-perceived highbrow culture vulture when I was an early teen. And it wasn't until, I mean, I, th- I you know, I really loved reading about music and I loved 
consuming and living inside the world of these magazines, which weren't just about critical assessment of music itself, but also shone a light on this lifestyle. You know, I grew up in Glasgow and a lot of these these magazines, particularly magazines, more of the kind of pop culture magazine hybrids, such as um, such as The Face or Blender, like these kinds of magazines really uh, gave gave a bird's eye view into a lifestyle, a cosmopolitan sort of city lifestyle. And not that Glasgow wasn't a cosmopolitan city, but it really spurned me on to want to live in a city like London or New York. It wound up being London for me for seven years. But um, it wasn't really until I was about, I think I was 15 or 16, and I came across a book called Sex, Drugs and Cocoa Puffs by Chuck Klosterman. And it was a book that was split into chapters that were all kind of individual vignettes or essays, I guess, cultural essays on different matters, everything from Coldplay, um, giving people unrealistic expectations about romance to Chuck Klosterman's sort of a viewpoint on The Sims to <laughs> like a whole chapter on the over sexualization of Pamela Anderson. You know, like there were so many different um, elements of pop culture in this book, and I just, I just became obsessed with this idea. I, it was this permission giver of wait, I didn't realize that people could really nerd out and geek out over music and pop culture and write about it as a career that sounds really amazing and just kind of like an extension of the sort of conversations that I loved to have in the mess hall at lunchtime or whatever at school you know so I think it was a combination of reading all of those music magazines and pop culture magazines and really inserting myself into that aspirational sort of life vision that was inside those glossy pages reading Klosterman's work and if I played my cards right maybe this was something that I could do I didn't write about music until after university because I was very studious and I was very focused on my degree and I studied law so I wasn't I wasn't going to law school to then (laughs) become a music journalist it's just how things worked out but yeah I wasn't I certainly wasn't writing about music when I was in school but I was definitely talking about it all the time it was all I talked about I didn't know that about you that you went to law school that's that's wild to me I really conceived of myself as having to make a transition becoming a suit I guess more or less and I felt really claustrophobic about that and kind of sad like I was sort of leaving a part of myself behind and I knew the second I started to really engage with the legal world even in the summers between years or you know between semesters and I would go and I would intern at law firms I I knew that I was was making myself smaller I was just I was just you know restraining myself in order to fit a mold and it really never it just it just never felt right to me so I feel enormously lucky because I think that so many people um don't find don't get the opportunity of discovery to really find that thing that they that allows them to be themselves and allows them to excel in their passion. And um, I am lucky that I randomly 
randomly sort of discovered him and and that I was already engaging in music publications because I have to tell you none of my friends were reading Q magazine or the enemy when when I was at least I don't think anybody in my social circle was reading those magazines so no it was a similar thing for me so I grew up in uh, a little bit in London but also mostly here in New York. And I grew up mostly in like suburban New York before moving into New York City. And I, when I was like 16, I started, well, I started getting into music when I was like 15. And then when I was 16, I got really into NME, particularly online. But then I realized that there were stores in New York City that sold the magazine. So I would sometimes take the bus from Rockland County, which is just by Westchester, take a two hour bus to New York City just to get the enemy and then to come back home and read it or read it on the bus as well. And I remember there were friends of mine back in high school who thought that was like the weirdest thing, that you could be so enthralled by reading a music magazine. But going to what you said, it's true. It's exactly that, where when you read these magazines, you get a perspective of musicians that you can only dream of. And it really just opens you up to the fact that this music that you listen to, that acts as a companion in your life in like some dark times, there's like a depth to it that's even more than what you could have even imagined. Well, what we have to remember is that, I don't know how old you are, Ken, but when I was in high school, there was no, you know, I, I think we got cell phones when I was about 14 or 15 and they were Nokia 3210s and we used them <laughs> to play Snake and text each other SMS messages. We had dial-up internet at home. Napster was the thing that you left overnight, switched on, downloading a single MP3 file <laughs> overnight. And um, there was no such thing as social media. The magazines were the basis for access to artists. You couldn't talk to your favourite artists on Twitter or Instagram. Um, you needed to read these magazines in order to know what they were about, or you needed to watch MTV's TRL. You needed to tune into Top of the Pops on BBC One on a Friday night. You know, you you needed to put in time to to find out more. And it's interesting to me how staggering the change has been in the past, even just decade and a half. Because um, the way that my my dad is in his early 70s and he used to read the enemy on the bus when he was in school and someone in his year would get a copy and they would all like crowd over the magazine on the school bus and read like the latest news story about the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or whatever and to me that's not that different from what we were doing you know 40 years later nowadays the, the the change is so immensely staggering between what my generation experienced and and how I figure um, kids get their information about artists and the kind of soap opera of pop culture now. And I think so much of it, I mean, I'm projecting because I don't know because I'm not a teenager right now, but from what I gather, a lot of it is a very um, individualised, independent as opposed to interdependent process of discovery and there's something that I think is I don't know there's something that I lament yeah no I think there's a lot of truth to that I grew I'm 30 I grew up very similar to you and how you described it I mean I'm thinking even like uh I used to get a lot of music on LimeWire and I remember it was a big thing where you would like look for an album on LimeWire download it and then the next day when it was finished or whatever, it was a different album that someone mislabeled. And you're like, fuck, but 
But what you just described, I find that very... It blows me away that you're able to do what you do and how you've grown your career because in a lot of ways, because of you being a writer and pop culture being a big focus on what you write about, you kind of have to figure it out in real time and almost kind of like communicate with musicians and just kind of, you're like living in real time as the tides are shifting. And that's, there's something really fascinating in that. Yeah, it has been pretty fascinating. It's been scary, but also exciting. It's scary that a lot of the magazines that I've written for over the past 10 years no longer exist. The platforms have changed so rapidly. But one thing that keeps me hopeful is that there is still a hunger for the types of conversations that don't that don't happen without the kind of, you know, perfect storm of the right photographer, the right artist and the right writer. And people still want that. There is something that you know, I think a lot of artists now, or some artists now certainly of a particular stature, feel like they don't need press and they don't need to do interviews because they can talk directly to their fans. But what they're missing is that without kind of the trial of being in a room with someone and having a really in-depth conversation, there are elements to their process and their mental jungle that is not that can't just be accessed by oneself you know you need to engage in dialogue um, with either a like-minded person or somebody who completely disagrees with you in order to elucidate a, an interesting conversation around especially music because artists live with these songs that they write and these albums that they make for so long by the time they put them out a lot of you know a lot of it is can be difficult to talk about it can be difficult to consider in the abstract without someone else kind of guiding you along so the thing that keeps me hopeful is that I do still believe in the art of conversation and that it has a really high value and it just you know we just need to be open about where that conversation lives whether it lives in a print magazine or it lives on a podcast or it lives you know in a digital in another digital realm I do think that that kind of access still requires a writer to to eke it out and to you know to pour it back you know no, I completely agree with you because something that's really striking and quite amazing when you're interacting with someone is that you can have an idea of how a conversation is going to go, but it could go a multitude of different ways just by the virtue of two different people with two different lives and two different brains interacting. And it's like, you can't really quantify that. That's a very specific, special kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that nowadays when people are under the auspices that they have, limitless access to their favorite artists we just we as a community of of writers journalists photographers videographers we have to work harder to be good at our jobs to to i don't know to achieve the the access that doesn't actually exist you know yeah. uh, for for your regular consumer there is there can be the impression of access all areas but Really, the artist is just letting you see what they're allowing you to see, you know? Yeah. No, completely. It's one of the kind of strange, kind of like weird things about where things are right now. And 
You know, I kind of want to ask you about when you were working with NME, because one of the big reasons I became such a fan of your writing is that during your NME days, when you were doing profiles in that, I could tell that you, the way you were writing was kind of pushing against the norm and that profiles that you were making were going deeper than what was being mandated. And it felt, though, from me as a reader and someone who followed your work, that you agreed that there were many stories that weren't being told and that it was almost like your duty as a writer to do that. Am, am I like way off base in thinking that? No, 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 that was really it. I mean, I was there because I, I was supposed to be writing stories that had never been told before. That's what I saw as my duty. You know, you, you look in the archives of these magazines and not to slight them because these archives are incredible and they're historic and they're educational, but you see patterns and you see access given more to a certain kind of rock star and the diversity was lacking. And when you have um, a lack of diversity, whether it's on the cover mount or it's inside the pages of the magazine, you have a lack of diversity of storytelling because, you know, if we're not at the end of the day, the reason why I love profiling musicians has something to do with their art and their music. But it's really because I'm very interested in people and I'm interested in the human condition. And I find the um, the extremities of the rock or pop or hip hop arena to be so, so great that really is kind of like a an amazing petri dish in which to explore how we function as people and really that's how i'm coming at stories you know who who is this person what makes them tick why do they make this kind of art what are they running away from and what are they running towards and you know my remit for myself was always to go deeper and to go beyond just the kind of bread and butter of so where did you write this song and what country were you in and why did you choose this producer and you know I mean all of that stuff is is important to a certain extent but what's really important is who's you know who is the person at the center of this art and what's their story where do they come from what have they been through you know and certainly in the past the past decade we've had so many amazing intersectional conversations come to the fore that it has been I really do think that a lot of the reason why these conversations are happening particularly in western culture is because of pop and and I don't mean pop music but you know pop culture we have so much more access to diversity of stories because of the art that we consume and it's so important to be respectful in talking to the, the creators of that art and the people who are performing as part of it whether it's a netflix show or a movie or or an album or performance art piece whatever really create a, an, an environment that feels safe and trusting in order for those people to really talk about how they shattered glass ceilings and broke through barriers in order to be able to really tell a new story. Because there are so many stories that, have, that are being told now that even if I think back to the, the beginning of my career 12 or 13 years ago, I would be very excited, but also probably quite shocked. That's something that really speaks to me massively even, just even thinking about pieces that you write, for people listening who might not be familiar, just the general aspect of magazine writing, and also like in blogs, but in journalism, there is a almost like a bit of a contrast between doing it in a way that's very honest and creative and true, 
and also in a way that's very functional. And sometimes you kind of have to figure out how to meld the two, but a lot of these major publications do put out content that sometimes has a rhythm and a pattern to it, especially if you just think about articles from like a year ago or two years ago. But the way you described it there, that's something I've always been fascinated with your work. I feel like you always have this way of making sure that whatever thing you're going to write, whether it's a profile or a review, is that you're never going to do it the way you did it before. I feel like even the subjects that you profile, they're aware of that. Because, I mean, something that's really cool about this, like when you do a profile that I notice is that I feel like sometimes you make people question themselves, not in a bad way, but in a way where it's like you could tell they're being asked things that they're probably not used to being asked. And I mean, th this is quite a big question, but when you think about that kind of context, can you talk to me about like a, a particular article or profile that you feel very proud about? Yeah, I mean, off the top of my head, recently, I think I would probably have to talk about the Haley Williams profile that I wrote for New York Magazine. And it was, it was such a kind of bittersweet thing because that piece came out, she put out her first um, album of solo material called Petals for Armour, I think in May or June, it was sometime around spring, early summer. And we were really in the height of the pandemic and I'd been in lockdown for several months and work was not forthcoming. And I was completely at ease with that. I kind of made my peace with being with enjoying this thing called a weekend for the first time <laughs> in my life. and anyway this piece came out and I knew that it was a strong piece but the reaction I mean I think you know I can I can count on one hand the the amount of times in my career as a profile writer that I have had a reaction that has been that stellar across the board in terms of no trolling um you know some of my absolute heroes just you know, saying it was Haley's greatest ever interview. And Haley Williams, the front woman of Paramore, has been doing interviews for over, for two decades. So that is, you know, I'm immensely proud of that and immensely proud that also just really hardcore Paramore fans would say that they'd never, they, they'd never learned so much about Haley in a piece before. Now, I had a lot of access to her. I went to Nashville, where she lives. We went to a local, you know, diner, and she, I think we spoke for two hours. Um, and then I came back to LA, and about a month later, we had another hour on, by this, by this point, the pandemic was in full swing. Actually, the week that I went to Nashville was the final, it was the the first week in March. So that was my last hurrah before, oh, wow. before it went into lockdown. And then we caught up on a Zoom again a month later for an hour and she was at home in her in her house. And I really had, you know, the kind of access that it's an old school kind of access that not everyone gets anymore. And I think that, you know, you get it once you've established yourself at a particular point. And that is in a way a frustrating thing. But I think you know, when you're a younger journalist, you have to be resourceful with the kind of the scarcity of, um, of resources that you have, the time limit that you have, and try and do as much as you can to ask the unusual questions. And, you know, my, my thing has always been to really, like, study a human being as though I'm going to go and take an exam on them and really study not just all of their interviews that they've done in the past so that I know every question that they've been asked and how they've been asked it but also how they've answered it and how those answers might have changed over the years and where I might anticipate that there could be 
greater growth that I could then push further. And then also just watching a ton of a ton of footage of, of interviews or listening to audio interviews and picking up on someone's tics and the way that they behave, the way that they might react to certain questions and why. Does that make you feel uncomfortable? Maybe that's an area that I need to push at more. And I'm never I'm I never walk into an interview wanting to be someone's friend. And I think that that's really important and that's lost on a lot of people who have come up in the social media age where where everything seems to be about like for like and follow for follow and, and retweets and having your piece retweeted by the artist, that that actually was not part of the culture that I came up in. It didn't exist at that time. And you didn't do an interview with someone because you wanted them to personally promote it. You did it because you were interviewing someone and you wanted to gain knowledge. <laughs> that isn't to say that I don't come at an interview like the one I did with Haley, with a lot of empathy and with an element of gentleness because she's an incredible artist and a very powerful voice and human being. She's also somebody who's been through a lot and, and is talking about a lot of trauma in her art. And in order to, um, to attain the kind of a conversation that we then had, you have to find that sweet spot between showing empathy and allowing space and knowing when to push, knowing or being comfortable to say, well, what do you mean by that? Or I don't quite understand what you're saying. Can you explain that? Or can you offer an example? You know, you almost have to be outside of yourself and think about the reader and you're the vessel for the reader at the end of the day in the room. And it's not about, the job isn't that you're enjoying having the conversation, though sometimes that can be an amazing an amazing aspect of it if you are enjoying it. But there are a lot of times when I'm really not enjoying myself because <laughs> I'm having to, I'm having to ask things people don't want to be asked, you know, and, um, and I'm the one that's, I'm the one that's getting, you know, side eye or, or whatever. And, and it's can be, it can be awkward. It should be awkward. It should feel, you should have the adrenaline pumping through your veins as you're doing one of these interviews, you know, I've always found that if you're doing it well, you usually learn something about yourself while you're doing it, you know? That's what I love about interviews the most. And it's kind of like a driving thing with the podcast we're on right now, where I'm reminded of like an old uh, David Bowie quote, where he's talking about like how you never want to be in a position where you're playing up to the gallery and within the context of working, where it's very much that you want to always remember that the reason why you're working is that there was a time in which you realized that the work you do helped you have a better understanding of yourself. And I, that's something that I saw, I heard him say back in like, I think right before the lockdown started, like just like an old YouTube clip, but it's been a big driving force for me throughout this year and just like keeping perspective on how and also why I do things. And what's really beautiful there, Eve, is that when you think about how things are today and like how things go out so quickly and how things are kind of regurgitated in a way where like it's almost like a flash in a pan and you know the likes and the retweets and all that the approach that you have in an interesting way is almost contrary to all of that but the fact that your pieces still reach people and the fact that people still respond to them like the Haley Williams piece that you described it shows that there's still a place for that and that people can genuinely still respond to hard work like that's really to me quite an achievement in that and that piece I have to say, because um, 
I can I think I can honestly say as of now, my favorite album of 2020 is indeed that Haley Williams album, uh, Petals Farmer, massively because of just how creative it is, but just how much humanity is conveyed within the album. And a big part of me loving mm-hmm. it, that album, not only just experiencing it, but also reading your piece was a part of it because it added so much context and layers for me that I could take when I listened to that album again. So yeah, big ups to you on that because that's huge, really. Thank you so much. That is also one of my favorite albums of the year. So interesting and so raw. I mean, yeah. you know, and it's, it's, it's a unique challenge in itself when you're presented with interviewing someone who really hasn't left anything on the cutting room floor when it comes <laughs> to lyrically what they're talking about on their record. You're like, well, you kind of told your entire life story on this album, so what am I going to talk to you about? But, you know, there's always... you're just scratching the surface I mean there's so much there and really you just want to hold space for a really great conversation and I think the thing that's really interesting about what you just said is that it's not just um older older writers like me who don't want to play in the retweet like for like game with artists a lot of artists see through it too and they actually grew up on music magazines also, and they have a lot of respect for the art of criticism, even if they don't always like how it turns out for them. They mm. respect it. And it actually means more to them if they read something about their art that is written by someone who's not just trying to kiss their arse, you know? So I think it works. I think it definitely works both ways. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I'm curious, this is like a bit of a bit of like a fluffy question, but I'm just curious to know, like, is there someone that you felt uh, starstruck by over the course of your career? Like, in the context of like someone you really respected, and you were just kind of like, wow, I get to like talk to this person. Ooh, um, hmm, that's a good question. Because I have to say that there's something that happens to me when I walk into a room where I have to have to become a bit impervious to start to being starstruck by someone because the second I see someone not as a human being the interview is lost so while I may I've definitely felt about a lot of my subjects in anticipation of meeting them oh my god like I can't believe I'm going to be interviewing x y and z but when I walk into the room I'm not thinking about that stature I'm just thinking about the task at hand you know if I can look at things on paper like I've I've ridden in the back of a cab with Debbie Harry around New York with my dictaphone out interviewing her on paper I'm on paper I'm shaking about that (laughs) like that I I'm like did that that happen was that a fever dream what's going on but in the moment I wasn't starstruck I was just in a car with a woman who you know is a legend but it it wasn't I didn't feel that way in that in that moment not because she wasn't incredible but just because I kind of tap into this other gear when I'm interviewing someone to such an extent that I remember the first time I interviewed Liam Gallagher or or when I, you know, I interviewed Dolly Parton on tour once backstage. And I remember the end, the end of the interview and the end of the, my first Liam interview, you know, a, a publicist said, and now is your opportunity if you want to have a picture taken. And, you know, I'm not going to say no. I'm not going to say, because Dolly or Liam expect that. So I'm not going to be like, well, actually, I don't do that. I find that kind of awkward. So like you participate and you do it, but it's this kind of jarring 
I feel like I'm leaving that that part of my not act necessarily, but I it definitely I definitely kind of transfer from that state that I'm in of just being in work mode to oh yeah, I'm actually standing next to Dolly Parton right now. That's really that's really crazy. But the person in the photo opportunity is not the person that was doing the interview five minutes previously. It's just not, I'm not in that mode at all. Wow. Well, you are a much better person than me because like, funnily enough, I've been devouring um, Dolly Parton interviews lately. Like I really love her. And I think if I ever met her, I would lose my absolute shit. So. (laughs) I mean, she really, I think for me, for me, because I was so concentrating on doing my job, I was more just kind of terrified of her. I was like, (laughs) you know, because she's really difficult to people like that, people who have been in show business for decades upon decades, who have done tens of thousands, if not more interviews, know exactly what they're doing. And there is very little you can do about it. You know, so for me, I, I'm just, I know the task that I have at hand is enormous. And I'm thinking about how I'm going to do my job. And it's almost like Dolly Parton is in the way of that, <laughs> if that makes sense. I don't know, that's so weird. But I, it's un- those moments are unforgettable, you know. No, they really are. You know, prior to us talking, you told me that you'd be open to discussing your faith a bit. And I very much want to thank you for that, because... Um, one of the big things about this podcast in general is that I feel like our lives outside of work can greatly influence our work and vice versa. Yeah, tell me, Eve, what was it like for you growing up in a Jewish household in Scotland? Um, it's funny because every time I tell someone I'm Jewish, they don't think that there are, the reaction is always the same. Like, there are Jews in Scotland. <laughs> 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 it's, true. it's true. I mean, there is there is a really small community of Jews in Scotland, and we're a really tight knit community, and we kind of all know each other. Um, but it was, you know, it was a beautiful experience. I grew up in a really uh, nurturing, loving, secular, traditional home. Um, I always had my, I always, you know, the the importance of my my ethnic Judaism and my religious traditions you know always imparted on me from a young age I uh, went to a Jewish elementary school so I learned how to speak uh, read and write Hebrew for seven years and which I'm immensely grateful for because pretty badass language to be able to to know and it's not an easy one to learn when you're an adult um and then I went to a non-denominational high school and and you know I had a very I had a very balanced upbringing it was kind of my Jewish life was very separate from my existence in the kind of general outside world because we we were such a minority community in in Glasgow. But I felt um, I felt very connected to my faith through my family and some of my best closest oldest friends that I grew up with. Yeah, it was it was a really lovely way to experience childhood. You know. Yeah. I grew up Catholic and I'm I'm agnostic now, but I grew up Catholic as a kid. And it's interesting with like being non-religious, but kind of, you know, existing in a place like New York, because it almost feels like people almost sometimes wear it as a badge of honor, 
kind of being almost dismissive towards religion. But something that I feel like I've garnered from like traveling and being around so many different people is that even though I'm like, you know, I don't have a religion that I attach myself to, I tend to have quite an appreciation for other religions just for what they can provide people. What you described there about being connected to family, being part of a community, that to me is something that's so beautiful and something that tends to lack in so many people's lives. The fact that there's something in your life that can mean so much to you and that's something you can, you know, think back on, have memories of. I've noticed that throughout my lifetime and particularly my childhood with Judaism, like when I think back on, um, there's a neighborhood in Rockland County uh, called Mawa that we lived in for a bit and it was a predominantly Jewish neighborhood. And I remember, um, I must have been like, eight or nine as a kid and uh my family my uh american haitian slash french black family we got invited to a passover dinner i look back and that's like definitely one like a very happy experience that i look back on and i remember even then as a kid i could recognize the closeness that was facilitated by this faith so i just think that's something that's really cool i mean i think we live in a culture in an age right now where people are deeply suspicious of religion they're deeply suspicious of organizations and of um anything that feels like dogma but most i would say most people don't actually have a real understanding of what judaism is or what the jewish faith is i am pretty much you know i would go as far to probably say that i'm an atheist jew i don't i don't really believe in a god and i don't practice religiously um i have a few cultural traditions that i have kept for instance i am kosher but that's not for religious reasons it's just because of my culture um but i think that people need to work harder to understand that judaism doesn't necessarily denote that you're a deeply religious person you might be you might be not remotely religious at all, but you're still as Jewish as a rabbi, you know? So it's it's definitely important to understand that Judaism works, it, it's an it's an ethno-religion. It's it's both um it's both linked to ethnic, you know, genetic makeup as it is to to religious identity. And yeah, I think I think many people consider the idea of a religious orientation and run in the opposite direction because they think that it's anathema to progress or modern life or, you know, this, that and the other. And I don't think that of religion at all. And, you know, I hold space for so many Jews on my social media now, both some of them, some of them to be ultra Orthodox and some of them, very reform or just not religious whatsoever um but there is a lot of ignorance i would say around around how diverse the notion of being jewish is and honestly like what you just said there i feel like that could be described i mean we're obviously talking about so specifically judaism but i think that could be used to describe just a multitude of things and it's weird how sometimes people don't allow for there to be nuance within what their perception of things to be. Because what you said just there, to me, sounds so obvious, but I feel like for some people, it will be illuminating and almost like surprising to them. But I feel like when you think about anything in life, you should be able to consider that there must be multitudes and shades and variations and so many different spectrums. I just think that's so important that people have a, at least a tangible understanding of that on some level, that you can have a perception of something, but it's not going to align with the reality. Because the reality is that 
people are different. Like, there's just so many. You can't you can't confine something to one sentence, especially a religion. Like, it just doesn't make sense. But we now, you know, as of the past ten years, we live in a culture where our entire identities are defined by square boxes on Instagram and 240 character tweets. And unfortunately, I think with the with the drive of an identity politic and tribalism and these binary methods of thinking, it has really killed the discourse around anything nuanced. And it's dangerous because people are not, people see things as either or and they, and they want to fit they want to fit people into very narrow, very narrow categorizations or very narrow ideas and, and pit narrow ideas against other narrow ideas. And this is where we're getting so much um, vitriol and, and clashes on the internet and really, you know, harmful, slanderous, toxic, dangerous diatribe that's that's not just attacking Jewish people, but attacking people of all sorts of identities because we've now moved into a world where our Twitter bio is used to denote these multitudes that we all um, assign ourselves with, whether they be gender or age demographic or sexuality or religion, ethnic identity, race. I, I find it honestly quite terrifying. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you there. And Something I'm curious to ask you about is, you know, just when I brought up how I grew up and just the Jewish friends that I had and, you know, that I still have now as an adult, I feel like something that I've always been aware of is that Jewish people, particularly within the community, there is, I mean, historically and even now, there's always been this sense of pain and this understanding of being constantly attacked. And I'm just curious to hear about an experience that you had that, or that you've witnessed where you felt like you garnered more understanding of that. Because I've actually been surprised to talk to Jewish friends of mine where they didn't come to that realization till much later in their life within about what's going on with their own community. Yeah, I mean, I was definitely, I was definitely aware of anti-Semitism growing up because I grew up, as I said, in a city that, you know, we were really, really a minority. And I was always discouraged from being visibly Jewish. So, you know, don't wear your Star of David over your shirt. You know, I would go, I would holiday to Israel and we would just not, I didn't really talk about where I was going. And, you know, um, I don't think, I don't know that I did it, but I definitely know that there were people that, you know, would explain away the fact that they were kosher is that they were vegetarian or whatever. And it was very much a matter of like, don't ask for trouble you know, just, just keep yourself to yourself. And I think that the subtext, well, I I don't think I know that the subtext for my dad was always, you know, I grew up with a phenomenal amount of Jewish education, historic, religious, um, everything. And a lot of it, because a lot of our 2000 plus year history is rooted in story after story of oppression. A lot of it was about how how we've survived through all of all of this you know a manifestation of an, an age-old hatred and my dad would tell me growing up you know Eve that the world is anti-semitic and and I didn't want to believe this I really didn't want to believe this and I really you know I really defied this growing up and I wanted to 
Because any any child does not want to be told that the world is filled with a hatred that stands against them. You want to see as a child, and you know, I keep this in me as an adult, I want to see the best in the world. I want to see the best in people. And I don't want to be automatically assuming that everyone around me hates Jewish people. But um, but it's not as simple as that. It's about systemic, institutionalized bias and ignorance and a lack of understanding and often case a lack of recognition about what anti-Semitism is, who Jews are, what our story is, and what constitutes prejudice against us. But yeah, I mean, certainly, certainly in the past couple of years of my life, I have to admit that my my dad is has always been a hundred percent correct. The world is anti-Semitic. And it doesn't pain me so much to say that now. I actually find it more liberating because it's a place from which to start having a conversation that hopefully leads to progress and leads to um, actual acceptance of the status quo so that we can work harder to make Jewish people feel included and feel safe in in non-Jewish spaces. Because we live, if we are diasporic Jews, of which I am one, and which means effectively a Jew that doesn't live in Israel, we're living in the non-Jewish world and we should be just as free as any other ethnic, religious, racial minority to speak up when we're not being treated equally and fairly as everyone else as a result of our Judaism. I mean, what speaks to me so much about what you're talking about is just like, there's an idea that not proactively participating in racism or anti-Semitism means that you're not a participant at all. But something that I feel a lot of people have a difficulty grappling with is the aspect that indifference is a form of participation. I feel like that really much goes to show how anti-Semitic the world is, and also racist as well, in a very general sense, where there is almost a strange proactive indifference towards other people's pain, even from people who would find themselves to be empathetic. And I think there's a big danger within that. I mean, there is an evil face of anti-Semitism that we have seen and that we are seeing now, but it is very strange to me how there's almost kind of like an aspect of dismissal that's very innate in some people. I think back to a lot of the videos that I watched on IGTV by certain activists and advocates at the beginning, like kind of in the, not at the beginning, but in, in the wake of George Floyd's murder. And these, these black voices were saying, this is not new. We have been screaming into the void about this for so long. So, you know, take this moment to really pay attention to what we're saying. And while I entirely commend the movement and I think that it has done phenomenal work this year I also remain and I don't want this to you know uh, I'm careful about how I say this because obviously I am in complete support for the movement but I have to admit that there's an element of me that remains skeptical about people's participation in it because and and when I say people I mean non-black society because To me, I feel as though a lot of the work that has been done, to your point about recognizing that merely like existing in a state where you feel as though you're not a racist person, so therefore you're not causing a problem, you know, recognizing that that is actually 
still participating in isn't good enough. Even the fact of the matter that that notion in itself hasn't been transferred to other communities and isn't something that's widely understood to be actually universally applicable, to me, makes me question how much this notion has actually sunk in and how much pe- how much work people are prepared to do to create safe, universal, um, understanding environments for all sorts of people. And, um, you know, there's just whatever, whatever it takes for people to wake up and start recognizing how much prejudice and hate exists across the board in the world. I, I think is, you know, it's terribly tragic that it had to be the events of this year in order for the BLM movement to really gain traction. But at the end of the day, it needs to keep going. And sometimes I fear that the populism of the moment creates this kind of fad whirlwind trend that then dissipates. And when I see that people can't use the same the same logic to apply to other situations, I wonder how much they're really learning. Does that does that make sense? No, it completely does. And I mean, that's definitely how I found myself feeling. I mean, I agree with you completely what you're saying, because as a Black man, seeing how the world kind of transformed over the course of that, there was both a, a response of surprise in a positive sense and also skepticism, because you know, existing as a Black person in America and also traveling in Europe and there's an understanding you gain that people are okay with as how racist the world is for racism to be as thrife as it is. So seeing people have this response as almost though it was a wake-up call, there was almost this thing with me where innately I was like, wow, I didn't know white people cared this much. But then almost a bit of a thing of thinking, right. like, it takes something so drastic for you to notice. Like, it, there's a, there was like an inner reconciliation from that on my part, but almost a frustrating one because it is a very, it's hard, man. It's a really weird one to live in. Well, it is frustrating. And it's also frustrating that people need their hands held. You know, it's bad enough that a community is is experiencing so much prejudice and hurt and victimization. But for that community to also have to hold the hand of the rest of the world through understanding the prism in which they experience life is incredibly frustrating. It just it just shows the lack of understanding as to how much energy it actually takes to exist. And you know, you also have to experience joy in your life. You have to have room to experience so much else. And that's something that I've had to really um grapple with as as an ad, as an advocate in the space of Jewish identity too is just knowing when to shut people down and say, you know what, I need to actually go out into the world and experience some joy and some excitement today. At the same time, you're not just a black man and I'm not just a Jew. You know, we are we are people made of multitudes and and those multitudes are are so important because that's what connects us to each other as well. Um, so I don't know, all that to say that this year has been very exhausting <laughs> and um but yeah i think you know nuances nuance conversation is the is the way forward and we all have a lot to learn from each other you know that hand-holding thing that you brought up i mean take holocaust denial for example within regards to your community and just like that's something that 
staggers me because I distinctly remember being, um, I must have been 11 or 12 in school. And I remember they made us read uh, Night by Eli Wiesel. And the experience of reading that book is something that I will never forget. And it's something that has stuck with me. And the conversations that happened after where it was very much like, because, you know, it's interesting how the way my school did it. They made us read the book. They gave us the book on a Friday and said we had to read it over the weekend. And then we would talk about it on Monday. So that's pretty heavy. But the brilliance of that is that when you come into school on Monday, the classes that had that book, there was kind of like a bit of cloud over our heads because it was kind of like, there's no way you could read that book and not have, there's no way it's not going to stick with you. Like it's impossible, but it's something that's very necessary because the fact that that happened is something that has to be, it has to be screamed at. And the fact that we live in 2020, that there's people who are willing to deny that is just, I can't even wrap my head around it. And also just the, um, I mean, the internet is now the Goliath. And, you know, you, you look at the Jewish community worldwide, we're 0.02% of the global population. How many of that 0.02% are active online? And at that, what percentage of Jews who are active online are actually doing work like myself and a couple of other advocates are doing fighting anti-Semitism? Very, very small number versus you know, these, these huge platforms like TikTok and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram that are promoting, you know, up until recently, there are now um, legislative effects about, or, the, you know, the, it is being imposed upon some of these social media companies that they can no longer host Holocaust denial on their platforms. But what we've been seeing even since those rules have come in is that they're not effectively eradicating it. So... It is just this massive Goliath of misinformation and something that myself and a couple of other Jewish voices talk about recently is the fact that, you know, in the next decade, we're really probably going to see the loss of of all of the remaining survivors from the Holocaust. And how do we keep those stories alive? You know, it's kind of, it does terrify us that, that those living memories of the most recent horrific uh, attempt at annihilating our people will will no longer be here. You know, with with the kind of dwindling of significance and importance as it is of Holocaust education right now, it will become even less so when there are no longer the living memories of those who survived it. And how we keep that story alive and how we really interpret the words never again as Jews because the other thing that's really harmful to our community specifically is you know it's it's really it's amazing for our story as Jews to be inspiring to other communities and for the words never again to be inspiring to other communities but ultimately they are our words and they belong to our tragedy and our story and it's really important that the context of that is understood because if it is too subsumed in wider society and the story of the holocaust is lost then that just makes the jewish people extremely vulnerable in you know in the non-jewish world and we can't have that happen yeah but i think just to resonate more in regards to that word that you used is just like you know 
people could say like, you know, 50, 60, 70, how many years ago. But I mean, the fact that it's existed within a lifetime says a lot. And even as, you know, if you go 10 years into the future, it doesn't matter. Like, yeah, it's just that it's, it's a wild thing to me because I, I find myself struggling at times to think about how there's people who question it because I mean, there's people who you can never argue with or ever um, have conversations with because they're not operating on good faith. But people would fashion themselves as intelligent and then will find themselves denying it. I mean, I would just love to ask those people what they think the purpose would be. Like, I mean, just to I mean, to have a skepticism of people suffering, I don't know what that serves for anyone. It's just very strange to me. I think for if I can be so bold as to answer your thought process, I think the, um, for a lot of people, they're assuaging their own guilt and their own, their own, they're assuaging their own responsibility for their own bullshit, basically, by, by projecting onto other vulnerable groups. And they don't want to listen and they don't want to learn. And I know this from, you know, even the daily interactions I have with people online where, I immediately know when I'm talking to someone who gets a rise out of, it's like a sport to them to, to beat the Jew up, you know, and, um, and they do it under the auspices of being progressive and quote unquote woke. And it's so jarring. It's so jarring to not understand. I mean, this comes back to sort of the skepticism that I was talking to before about the lack of ability to apply one thing that you've learned for one specific demographic of people and not be able to apply it to another. You can't fight hate with more hatred. And I just see there's so much bile online and so much tribalism, like blind faith in in dogma, essentially. And I just find it so unbelievably ironic that that those sorts of people are making sweeping accusations of for instance, Jewish people, because they perceive us as being religious wackos or whatever, you know, and they have zero time to ask a question and listen to an answer and really educate themselves. Knowledge is power and more people need to open a book, (laughs) to be honest with you. So, (laughs) No, you're totally right at that. But that just makes me think of something that troubles me a bit because... I'm someone who reads history a lot, have read quite a bit of books, and like I have close friends from both Israel and Palestine, and they both live within you know, America, but also those respective countries as well. And what really strikes me as being strange in how the modern conversation is in regards to these this part of the world is like how there's so many people who will only read an article or two and not realize that there's so much nuance in history that spans so far back that... It can't be condensed into a Twitter thread or even like a 3,000 word think piece. And I just think it's such a big mistake for people to view the world, not just like that part of the world, but the world at large as one that you can understand by reading an afternoon. You can't. It's just absurd. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, I've been studying. I've been to, I've never been to any of the occupied territories, but I've been to Israel two dozen times in my life. I've been studying the history of that region, the history of the Jewish people. You know, in order to understand Israel, you need to understand the history of the Jews. You need to understand it 
back to the land of Judea. That is why we are called, we're called Jews after the land of Judea. When people don't understand that Zionism is just a, is, is just a, a project for self-determination, they don't understand that the Jews are indigenous to this part of the Middle East and were expelled from it over 2,000 years ago and have since been in host countries all over the world. But people talk about Ashkenazi Jews, and I am an Ashkenazi Jew, specifically as quote-unquote European settlers uh, who, you know, in Israel. And we're not, we, we may have... We may have appeared in Eastern Europe because we uh, we were expelled from Israel, but or or Judea, but we we're not from Eastern Europe originally, you know. Yeah. So it's it's a vastly it's a huge huge history, and you're right, it's not something that you can learn in an afternoon. It's not something that you you know you can even learn in six months sometimes it's really really long and arduous it's quite boring (laughs) and in order to really have a full understanding of it you you do need to delve into both the palestinian and the israeli perspective it's very difficult and the most difficult element of this is that people have simplified it in order to attack online basically and this in my opinion and it's a shared belief is the modern day manifestation of violent anti-semitism online especially by the progressive left is this is this idea that you know fair criticism of israel uh, necessitates a boycott and um, a boycott of the state and also the proliferation of anti-Zionism which would lead to taking rights that were fought for away from Jewish people. It really disturbs me that people aren't prepared to listen to that perspective because if over 90% of Jews worldwide are Zionists, they're Zionists for a reason. So if you're equating the idea of Zionism with racism because you read it on a pamphlet somewhere and it sounds like the thing that you know you should be wearing as a badge on your backpack and you're not actually listening to over 90% of Jews as to what Zionism means to them and why it's important to not only them personally but to Jews worldwide in respect to our survival then you're just being blatantly ignorant Zionism isn't just an ideology anymore. Zionism is a state of play. Zionism is the fact that Jews live in Israel and are citizens of of a country that is a Jewish country, is a Jewish state. So to be anti-Zionist is to say that you don't feel as though those people's lives matter and that they they shouldn't be living in their homeland. That is anti-Jewish. That is anti-Semitic. The amount of emotional gymnastics that you have to do to argue that that's actually not what you're getting at is is completely insane. Israel is not an apartheid state, which is what is often lobbed at, at Jews advocating online. Palestinians have the same rights in Israel as Jews have. They sit in, in government. They go to the same universities as Jews go to. They share the same public spaces as, you know, as or I shouldn't even say Jews as Israelis do. You know, this is not 
this is not an apartheid regime that is happening in Israel. Um, but that's another misunderstood element of Zionism. And then also, you know, the United Nations has not been a friend of Israel. It's not been a friend of the Jews. And in 1975, the United Nations declared that Zionism is racism. So this is something that rears its ugly head over and over again, is, you know, this idea that the state of Israel was founded on a fundamentally racist proposition, which, again, is just obscene propaganda. Israel is the, if not one of, the the shining example is really the only uh, successful return of a people to their indigenous homeland. And I don't, what exactly is racist about that? It's, it's absurd. It's an absurd argument. It's as absurd an argument as arguing that the Holocaust didn't happen. For me, that's, I, I equate those two things. I don't, I don't see the difference between those two arguments. I think people find themselves way, I mean, you brought it up so succinctly in regards to how people are, you know, now reduced to 140 characters in like a Twitter bio. But I mean, even with that understanding, there is a very strange thing when people discuss Israel and discuss so many different things in the world, and they remove the humanity of it. I mean, we're talking about a nation where people exist, have lives, go to school, work, pay taxes and bills, have children. And at the end of the day, you can't be so loose when you're talking about people. Like, it's just a very weird thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's become the sport. But again, it's anti-Semitism. It's just a bunch of people online, in politics, on university campuses, who want to bash Jews. And they do it under the guise that they're bashing Israel. They're not bashing Israel. The people who suffer when these conversations are happening are Jewish people who are going about their business, just getting on with living in secular society, and are suddenly finding themselves in this crossfire, having to debate Israel-Palestine, which is, it's just, it's very outrageous. And it makes, it makes my blood boil. And it's, it's really, it does not create an environment in which Jewish people feel safe. You know, I know I talk about this a lot online, and I've really given a lot of amplification to Jewish students on university campuses in in America. And for anyone listening who wants to know more about this, I really, really recommend following um, an Instagram account called Jewish on Campus. They're on Twitter also. And there's also a student called Blake Flayton who uh, writes for Tablet Magazine on this very issue. And what is happening to Jewish students across American college campuses right now is absolutely shameful. They're being terrorised on campus for being Jewish because they are asked at the door basically to denounce Israel in order to be accepted into progressive movements on campus. And nobody seems to care enough to say anything, to put their foot down and say that this is this is just a really, really obscene way to treat a group of people who are just trying to go and get a college education. It's really disgusting. And I've had friends uh, as recently as like two, three years ago, uh, young Jewish friends in universities who have had really troubling experiences, essentially being cornered to answer for things that, I mean, quite frankly, I've seen it where friends who are Jewish who don't even have the knowledge to answer for anything that's being asked, but whether or not they have the knowledge to, that's not the point. It's like, why are you being asked to answer for something? 
that's so beyond the context of your daily life. It's just, it's very strange. Yeah, and I have to also say, this is a really serious academic subject. And it's not, the onus is not on diasporic Jews to know to know the ins and outs of this so that on the occasion in which they do inevitably get cornered about Israel-Palestine, because it's happened to so many of us. It, you know, the experiences I had at university have really traumatized me. I mean, there were years after which that I was not able to advocate for myself as a Jew because I didn't want to re-enter that forum. But that is a for- that is a really deeply ingrained form of anti-Semitism to think that Jews need to play the sport of, well, you're going to be the Jew that convinces me otherwise as to, you know, what I know to be true about, about Israelis and Palestinians. And it's not, it shouldn't be the responsibility of Jews to have to educate non-Jews in a conflict that's happening thousands of miles away in a country they may never have visited just because they're Jewish. You know, tell me, Eve, what, what you said just there, because you brought it up earlier about like how at a young younger age, you did find yourself not feeling as though you could be as open with your faith. What do you feel like that kind of shifted for you? When do you think life became different for you? I got really scared. I got scared in a way that felt different. When I was growing up, I was aware of anti-Semitism, but I wasn't, I mean, I was, you know, it was unpleasant and it made me feel very uncomfortable at times. You know, I was called a kike on the bus once, but was I scared? I don't know if I was scared. In the past couple of years, I've actually become abjectly scared. I'm I'm scared of the politicization of anti-Semitism on both sides of the political aisle. I'm, I got particularly fearful with the UK general election last year when the um, the man who would be prime minister of the UK who was standing to become prime minister on behalf of the Labour Party was anti-Semitic and you know this was con- this was contested at the time but it has now come to light a year later after an independent report was was done in, in, to investigate the inner workings of him and his party that the Labour Party had become a breeding ground for hateful anti-Semitism. That terrified me, that the prospect of a leader in the country that I grew up in who was enabling hatred of Jews in his own political party, anything that would add and galvanise and give power to people who hate Jews in a political forum really, really scares me. And and I don't necessarily feel as though um, I can just continue on in my life anymore just thinking that, you know, anti-Semitism might be something that's unpleasant for me when I meet people who don't like Jews. It feels a lot more, um, I don't know, I, I, you know, I'm, I don't, I don't want to speak terrible, you know, terrible things into existence. But when you are so aware of Jewish history and you're aware that in every generation Jews have been targeted by different enemies, um, be them on the right or the left or or wh- whatever, you know, it's abundantly clear that you're not safe. And when you see a trend of something that isn't rising, but is really risen. I don't know, it just, 
as someone who has a public platform and has, who has always lent their voice to the stories of others, it just became fundamentally clear and also fundamentally a juxtaposition to me that I would not use my voice to talk about this because of all of my multitude, being a feminist, being a queer person, being Jewish is the one that I actually feel abjectly threatened around um, in a public way. And I feel as though progressive conversations in the past couple of years have made me feel a lot more seen and included as a woman, as a queer woman, what have you. But the conversation has made me feel less included and more outcast in terms of my Judaism. And for that reason, it's really the thing that I need to concentrate on being the loudest about so that people in my captive audience, who I still believe to be fundamentally good people who want to learn and whose hearts would be broken to know that this is, you know, where my head is at right now, I believe it's a value for me to continue to speak to that captive audience. Because while a lot of them don't seem to be visibly engaged in what I'm saying, I kind of have faith that some of it is going in, you know? Some of it might be seen, some of it might start to to penetrate something. I mean, something I want to speak towards, like what you brought up about the Labour Party there. I mean, you're, you're of course speaking of Jeremy Corbyn, and for people who don't have any insight or understanding about how that whole situation broke down, I feel what's very significant about you bringing that up is that what made it a very strange and uncomfortable situation to just see play out is that he would be asked by members of the press about this, even as recent as like, you know, several months ago, and even as far back as like maybe like what, like three, four years ago. And like, it was very strange that there were times where he would have annoyance that he had to speak to it uh, and to apologize or show any empathy. And I've seen you post about this and I agree with you. I have friends who are labor supporters who would get annoyed at Jewish people bringing this up. And my retort to this, especially as a black person, is that if you are against anti-Semitism, if you are against racism, you have to speak against it at any moment, at any opportunity, especially and more importantly, if you are being inferred to be about that in any way. And to see... The times that I've seen it where he has been asked about this and he expressed annoyance, I have always left feeling dismayed and confused at the idea that you wouldn't jump at the chance to just outwardly say, that is not anything that I believe in and I don't want anything to do with. It goes to what you're saying about the world having this deep anti-Semitism to it. Like that, it speaks to that. That's what that is. It's so, I mean, now, now that things have panned out the way that they have. I I know I'm allowing myself the moment right now to just kind of find his incessant inability to apologize and his annoyance at being called out. His annoyance that he has been found out as anti-Semitic. I can only find his repeated refusal to deal with it to be, you know, depressingly amusing. But um, I tweeted something today actually about the kind of the the weird difference between anti-Semitism and other forms of prejudice. And I think it's worth noting that 
for the most part, there aren't a lot of social consequences for particular elements of anti-Semitism. There aren't social consequences for the type of anti-Semitism that people like Jeremy Corbyn are engaged in. That means that there's no shame around it. So where, if someone were, if you were to tweet someone and immediately you were piled on by 20 to 30 to 50 to 100 people who said, oh my God, you can't say that, you're, you're being racist, you're being homophobic, you're being misogynist, like that's sexist, that's ableist, you can't say that. You're immediately, even if you don't see it, you're going to be panicked and you're going to feel ashamed. And something, there is a social consequence to you having said something that has been deemed in some way prejudiced. That doesn't happen with anti-Semitism. And I find that really concerning and fascinating. And I'm kind of trying to understand when the anti-Semite is accused of being anti-Semitic, rather than apologize for it and feel shamed, they express annoyance that they can't continue spitting in the Jews' face. It's kind of, it would be funny if it wasn't so depressing, <laughs> you know? It's really dark, man. It's really, it's sad, honestly, because it, we're speaking right now at the perspective of being dismayed towards our allies because I mean I would generally I mean I don't really find myself aligning with any political party but I would express that I'm generally a left-leaning person and I imagine in some ways that you are too in some respects you know definitely correct me if I'm wrong but I think when we see no, yeah and I think when we see our friends who are like you know most people in the orbit of our lives who would you know openly express themselves to be liberal not having a sense of care towards this it's it's sad like i i definitely know see what you're talking about yeah it does so and also i think the thing that i've started to express more is that like politics aside i don't think that because you're necessarily like politically inclined one way or the other that necessarily makes you a good person because i see so much hypocrisy on the left so this whole idea that the left is the community of the good it's absurd to me now and I you know I'm almost kind of becoming less interested in people's politics and more interested in people's independent thought process and in their interest level in educating and engaging in nuanced dialogue that to me is is actually becoming more important than which echo chamber someone lives in if that makes sense no, it does. It kind of <laughs> nicely kind of goes back to what we were talking about before about like how you conduct yourself in your career because what you just described there is like the type of person that is going to further their independent thought and educate themselves. It like it kind of <laughs> mirrors the hard work you provide within your own work, like the extra mile that you'll go. So that kind of makes sense to me. Not to just no, make a crude I, correlation there, but no, I actually really thank you for recognizing that because something that I have had to remind people a lot of this year is that I have never ever had any qualms about who I interview as regards their politics. I've interviewed people who are really right wing and vote for Donald Trump, and I've interviewed people who are super radically left, and I treat all of them as people I'm walking into, you know, engage in a conversation. Because we're all human beings and the conversation is what matters, in my, in my opinion. You know, that's, that's what I'm doing in my work. So the link that, you, that you've established there makes 
a lot of sense to me. Uh, glad that that speaks to you. You know, something I've never had a chance to talk with a Jewish friend about, and it's something I like when I knew I was going to talk to you is like pretty much the first thing that came to mind is that it's very so there, there's a way that musical acts, I should say for people who are listening who don't have context, typically a, musical acts are sometimes discouraged from playing within Israel. And there is a coalition of successful artists who essentially talk other acts out of playing Israel. There's times where people book shows, announce them, and this group of acts online will essentially, I'll you go as far to say, fine, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say, I'll go as far as say, it's essentially like bullying, like, and that's the thing that I don't. I don't mind calling Roger Waters out. He is fully a Jew hater, so you know he can have it. Yeah. As is disappointingly Brian Eno, because I used to love Brian Eno, but yeah, yeah, Roger. We should say yeah, Roger Waters and Brian Eno are essentially like at the forefront of this. And you know what's always troubled me about this is that it's meant to be a spit in the face towards the Israeli government, but it's actually a spit in the face of the citizens, some who don't even agree with their government, because I think what's very strange is this idea that citizens have to bear the brunt of their government. And I bring this up because I just want to know, like, how do you feel about this? And have you had talks with acts about this in the past at all? Like, has this ever come up? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I feel extremely passionately about this. I am very anti-BDS. And BDS is the movement, the Boycott, Divest, and um, Divestment and Sanctions movement that participate in this. The, the live events is just one element of the work that they do. And they're also responsible for boycotting um, products that are made in Israel or brands that work uh, with manufacturers in Israel. And um, the thing about BDS is that on the face of it, it is very uh, sexually marketed as just an innocent, peaceful protest that puts economic pressure on the Israeli government. But actually, at its root, the BDS movement is intending to completely divest the state of Israel and all of its citizens. It it wants Israel to not exist. So that is at the absolute root of the of the movement. That's where it starts from. So it's it's not peace. It's not a peaceful project. Um, But in terms of what you're asking me about, I mean, It's absolutely absurd to me when I have been to music festivals in Israel, of which I've attended many and have also been to many concerts in Israel. What you, what most, you know, reasonably minded people infer and and observe is that culture is at the heart of what brings Israelis, Arabs, Palestinians together. So, you know, whenever I've been at a concert or a music festival in Israel, there have been these beautiful moments of togetherness between the communities. And you're exactly right to deny, to den- I mean, there are voices that speak so eloquently on this and most of them people who have played in Israel. So Nick Cave has spoken incredibly on this. Tom York has also said some incredible things about the times that Radiohead have played in Israel and about the hope that it inspired that music and art Again, we were talking earlier in this conversation about, you know, our differences, but also the multitudes within us that connect us, that make us similar. We're having this conversation as music fans, as people who love music. And art connects people regardless of who they are, where they come from, what war they're fighting. It is absolutely absurd 
to deny the citizens of this country the joy of art and music and a collective joyful experience because of some westernized academic boycott that has really wayward intentions. I think it's really, really tragic. And yes, you, you were correct when you talked about the, um, the use of bullying and particularly online manipulation. You know, it's in conversations, and I won't mention names, but in conversations I've had with artists who have come to me privately to ask me, uh, I've been asked about whether or not I would play in Israel and I'm not sure what to say. It breaks my heart that it's even a conversation that I have to have because of the amount. They're having that conversation not because they want to deny civilians enjoyment of their art. They're having that conversation because they're terrified of the bullying that they will experience online if they were to go there and play. Who, you know, we're talking about the art community here. Why are we experiencing this level of online terrorizing? around something as simple as playing a concert in a country. It's really, it, again, I don't mean to keep using the word absurd, but as a logical human being and an empath, I find that incredibly absurd, that that is a, that is a scenario that we're dealing with. It's extreme. It's extreme. It is extreme. And it's really heartbreaking and very short-sighted. Yeah, you couldn't have said it any better than the way you just did. And it's there's a couple things I want to say, particularly about like how short sighted it is, because what you said there about what art's supposed to do, it's very strange how a lot of this kind of rhetoric of do not play shows in Israel, and it comes from people who are left or left-leaning, and it's kind of like you're depriving people of the experience to have a communal experience of art and interacting with people who are different from them. So that in itself runs very contrary to what I think a lot of people think they believe in, which is very disturbing. But like we've said about the bullying aspect, I mean, I've toured around with a couple acts. I've been very fortunate to do that work-wise. And there's some musicians that I hold very dear as friends. And I've been around acts when they've gotten the calls and the emails to not play Israel. And honestly, I found it really quite gross. Like, I've always been in situations like either as a friend or employee where I can't say much, but when I observed how the interactions would happen, it would essentially be quite literally bullying. There was never, and what kind of highlights that to me, how, what I've taken from that over the years is that I've never seen a situation where it was uh, a matter of conversation to be had. It was always, uh, it, it was never a thing of like, here are some things you should know to make you, to make an informed decision. Just a pure, you better not do this. And I honestly... Yeah from a personal level. I just dislike that attitude on so many levels. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fundamental prejudice bias against, again, the Jew among the nations, which is Israel. It's fundamentally, BDS is fundamentally anti-Semitic. It's saying you shouldn't go and play in the Jewish state. It's, it's sad because, I, I, I mean, I guess this is me being very naive, saying this out loud, but just that just shouldn't exist. But I mean, it's also not surprising that it does. My 2020 motto has been shocked, but not surprised. <laughs> you know, to be honest with you, that's been the case for me as well. Um, <laughs> before I let you go here, um, you live in LA and have for several years now. And earlier before we hit the recorder, we are talking about how the COVID pandemic has been beyond difficult in LA. 
I wonder if there's been a bit of a light in your life from having a Jewish community within LA that you could be a part of, because that must be a very, I imagine there's been some comfort there, especially with being so far away from, you know, Britain and that. Yeah, well, actually, I'm not very active in a Jewish community in LA. Most of my friends here are non-Jewish, and um, I'm really blessed to have friends in my life who are incredible allies. And, you know, if it weren't for COVID, uh, I was actually supposed to be making Shabbat dinner at a friend's, a non-Jewish friend's house on Friday night and uh, celebrating the second night of Hanukkah and kind of educating my it wasn't it wasn't me imposing this i was asked <laughs> to do this so you know um my friends are absolutely wonderful and i'm very blessed with having people in my life who are really supportive of of me and and create a safe space for me but um i i would say you know my oldest friend in the world lives in hong kong and we grew up in glasgow together and we're both jewish voices online and He's really my uh, Jewish mishpacha, which is our word for family. And, you know, it's, my Jewish family has actually become this online community that's been built of people trying to unite as one voice to stand up against anti-Jewish hatred. And, um, yeah, it's, you know, I, I in terms of L.A., the, the benefit that I have from living here is just being in a in a city that is really welcoming of all aspects of my identity. Um, but in terms of the, the safety that I find in my Judaism, I think I find that more online, to be honest, than I do in the city that I live in. That's really interesting. And I honestly hope that people take that away from just hearing how you talk, because we talked about it at length, obviously, that how a lot of people find themselves dismissing how other people feel. But when I hear someone express emotion, like a, a experience or a thought, I always wondered the why and the how. And for you to be able to say that about, you know, feeling more at touch with your online Jewish community than, you know, locally, I hope someone hears that and they wonder why. And then from that, they educate themselves because there is a very big, rich history within your culture and your community that honestly, I think it's a, people have it as a duty to educate themselves on because it's just, it's too important. Thanks so much, Ken. And thank, you, and thank you for holding the space for this conversation because there are so many conversations you could be having. So <laughs> you know, I, really, I really appreciate it. And that's a form of allyship in itself. So thank you for seeing me and for seeing my community and for giving me the space to share these thoughts. Oh, man, I'm so glad you appreciate it. And honestly, thank you. I mean, thank you for being so open, honestly. Having so much candor and just being willing to share your, yourself and your heart, like it just, it means the world. Thanks, Ken.